Hey everyone, you're listening to Obscuristan, the podcast where we talk about how fucking weird Eurasia is. And more importantly, how it got that way. We're your hosts. I'm Anna. I'm Karina. And without further ado, let's go to Obscuristan. I know that we usually don't like we're recording this obviously before we send it out and we don't necessarily want to date ourselves, but I'm going to date, date our us. recording today. I'm going to date our recording today um, because we're recording this the day after <laughs> Queen Elizabeth or QE2 has died. And I feel like, God, now your Twitter mentions were insane. It was a journey. It was a journey. The, I feel like it's just prompted the craziest fucking responses. I like, I don't know what I expected, but I really was shocked at the amount of um, sensitive, like, adoration, like, deification yeah. of Queen Elizabeth that I was like, what the fuck is going on? It also came from the weirdest places, too. Yeah, it wasn't often from Brits. It was like from, you know, sycophants. Yes. I didn't know there were that many royal, like, like legitimate, like genuine royal fans outside of the UK. I thought the rest of us were doing this for a joke, you know, but apparently not. It's shocking to me. And even like within the UK, I mean, the fact that the queen lived in a 1.3 billion pound palace, and that's just one of her many residences, sitting on her fucking throne, wearing her fucking crown that's worth 4 billion pounds. Well, in the same country right now, millions of people are facing unprecedented food poverty, like food banks are running out of food. Yeah. I mean, the monarchy has no sympathy for you and has nothing in common with you. And the fact that so many people projected this kind of benevolence and like kind heartedness on that institution is something I will never wrap my head around. No. And it's so bizarre because it's literally a monarchy. Eighth grade history class Period. level monarchy. Period. <laughs> what are we discussing? We're talking about cults of personality today. So I think it's relevant, even though it's not at all about Eurasia. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, like we're going from one weird fucking cult of yeah, authority to another. Um, yeah. So let's let's get into today's episode. So today we're talking about the former president of Turkmenistan. Sapar Murat Niyazov, also known as his self-given title of Turkmen Bashi, or father of the Turkmen, and his personality cult. Oh, we use Bashi in Armenian sometimes too, and I... Yeah, it's a Turkic word that means head. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's like the Russian slang word of Bashka. It's like, it's also from Turkish. So under Niyazov, every denomination of the money bore his portrait, as did domestic brands of vodka and tea. He had a rotating gold statue of himself, and he renamed the months in honor of his family. These are just some examples of efforts to create this idealized, heroic image of Niazov as leader, developed through mass media, propaganda, and just in public spaces. Did you say vodka? Vodka. And tea. And tea. And billboards. And kind of like everywhere. Yeah. And there's like really good academic work on cults of personality, how they kind of 
seep into the public space. So like you can't escape it. Like you, wherever you go, there's like portraits, you know, I mean, it reminds me of Turkey because there's flags everywhere and like Ataturk's, you know, image everywhere, especially in Ankara. But I mean, in fairness, we were just saying QE2, Queen of England, her portraits everywhere, right? Absolutely. Portraits everywhere, denominations, you know, the money, um, this kind of projected, but it's like so interesting, right? Because you, I'm, and I'll go into this a little bit, the fact that cults of personality really thrive in non-democratic contexts. Since Queen Elizabeth's death, it really does seem like a cult though. So I'm like kind of revisiting my assumptions about what I thought cults of personality were and what kind of context they operated in. But this is something else, man. Well, because I really thought it was kind of a joke, you know, and seeing this reaction makes it me realize that it's much more real. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see the parallels between various cults of personality and how like, you know, I, I feel like in England or in the United Kingdom and um, in European countries, it's sort of a little bit more standardized because it's a longer lineage. And so it seems more um, normal uh, and less weird and culty but when you think what you were saying he's got his face on money on portraits and you know portraits everywhere so here's the thing here's the thing it's really so cult of personality on the sociological or historical level um are really interesting because in the past it was monarchs and emperors that were often given enormous deference and veneration and assigned godlike qualities right but with the spread of democratic and secular forms of politics in the 18th and 19th centuries it became difficult for leaders to retain that kind of veneration. But the emergence of mass media allowed leaders to project this positive image of themselves. And in autocratic states like Turkmenistan, they took that to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Let me give you some basic background about Turkmenistan. And it's a country in Central Asia with a population of around 6 million. It borders Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Afghanistan, and the Caspian. Ashgabat is the capital and it's the largest city in the country. And I want to pause for a quick second, if I may, and acknowledge the fact that I didn't do this sort of intro for Russia when we did our episode on Kirkorov. And it's because my assumption... Um, it's my assumption that people know at least some basic things about Russia, but not about Turkmenistan, which was, you know, a Soviet state essentially colonized by Russia, before that by the Russian Empire. And it's the nature of power, right? We know empire. We know much less about the subjugated. So I also accept that this is probably why it's less likely that folks know, perhaps they might not know even some basic things about Turkmenistan. But it obviously, you know, it has a rich culture and history. It has some amazing rites of song and dance that are really cool. And while we're talking about Niazov's cult of personality in Turkmenistan and the fact that it's obviously bizarre, otherwise we wouldn't be featuring it on the podcast, I want to remind listeners that there's a dark side to personality cults, and it's because they operate only in the absence of functioning state institutions. Hmm. So here's some background on the country to sort of contextualize the environment in which Niazov's cult of personality developed. So Turkmenistan has the fifth largest reserves of natural gas in the world. Wow. But the country's education and healthcare systems lag far behind its neighbors. I didn't know the bit about natural gas. Mm -hmm. But it commands no significant ties to the rest of the world. And its gas exports de depend on dilapidated pipelines that run through Kazakhstan and Russia. I mean, that's such a sort of standard story for former Soviet countries, right? How they have been absolutely locked into these limited trading partnerships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's really um, upsetting, but also just such a testament to the longevity of empire for yep. how Russia has managed to lock these states into um, 
having their futures revolve around the future of Russia. Like Russia still remains the center and these states remain the periphery. So whatever, whatever their future holds is sort of determined by what happens to the Russian state, which of course, you know, within that state, there's also a center and a periphery. Yeah. It's, it's um, a double kind of um, fucked position to be in because you're dependent on the infrastructure. The infrastructure is dependent on certain parts. Then you're, you know, at so many different levels, you're just completely dependent on Russia, Russian industry, Russian politics, geopolitics. So yeah, it's, it's not a good place to be in. And in the Soviet era, Turkmenistan was perhaps Moscow's least favored Republic. It was last to get nearly everything. And important jobs, mostly in the oil and gas industry and government institutions, were filled by ethnic Russians, most of whom left after independence. So, you know, obviously they took with them all the expertise, all the kind of institutional memory. Um, not that those institutions, you know, operated the best way, but it was all gone. So it was like yeah. effectively starting from zero. That happened, I think, also in Kazakhstan, where after, you know, independence, there were obviously ethnic tensions because you had this sort of like Russian elite um class that was living in these countries. And it, I mean, it, it is sort of parallel to a colonizer relationship where now there's a lot of animosity towards these people. And so they all left too, but with them went so much institutional information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And developmental kind of potential. Um, the capital city of Ashgabat was leveled by an earthquake in 1948 that killed more than 100,000 people. Oh my God. I mean, it was absolutely devastating. I mean, the technical intellectual elite of the country was practically wiped out. That's horrifying. So horrible. The country, even today, has one of the poorest human rights records in the world. It has problems with press, religious freedoms, and its treatment of minorities. And then after independence from the Soviet Union, the country is ruled by three successive repressive regimes. And today we're talking about the first one, the one of Sapar Murat Niyazov, who became the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Republic of Turkmenistan in 1985. He became head of the country in 1990 and remained leader through independence in 1991, all the way to his death in uh, 2006. So that's 21 years. That's a lot of time. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you can imagine if he's been in power since 1985, essentially, like what kind of thinking vision he's bringing to his governance. <laughs> yeah, because that sort of that, that's not something I think about very much. But you're right that like literally having somebody that old who's been in power for that long sort of drags the past into the future even more so than it already is. Yeah, Because that's how he got power. So the assumption is that whatever you know, he did then worked probably. And even during Soviet times, he was known as a very kind of conservative and like um, repressive leader, even like relatively for that time. Oh, that's good. And just to give you an example of the dysfunctional governance in the country, a Nations in Transit report from 2005, so a year before his death, noted that officials, especially local officials in the regions of the country, tended to remain in their positions for very short periods, often less than a year. And given this brief tenure, officials gave low priority to solving the problems of their respective regions, preferring instead to use their short time and power to amass personal wealth. Mm. It was, and still is, a very repressive country. Travel guides from the time, from under Niazov's time, warned that restaurants and hotels frequented by foreigners were bugged and that Turkmen could be arrested for speaking to foreigners. The government maintained strict control over the media and internet, undertook regular purges of officials and high posts, and maintained a foreign policy that was essentially isolationist. 
fun stuff. That's crazy. I want to get a little bit into Niazov's life for listeners to understand him kind of as an individual as much as possible. So he had a kind of rough childhood. He was born in 1940, but was orphaned at an early age because his father was killed in World War II. And his mother was killed during that earthquake that I mentioned in 1948. He grew up in a Soviet orphanage and later was sent to a home of a distant relative. So I can't imagine he had a kind or nurturing childhood, right? No. But, you know, again, a lot of people kind of feel like I should say grew up in shitty circumstances and don't turn out so narcissistic. But I guess none of them... Yeah, they're not all dictators. You know, none of them kind of, you know, become leader of a country. (laughs) So there's that. Um... Yeah, and I'm not going to play amateur psychologist here, and I don't know if that childhood kind of explains that weird obsession with kind of elevating himself as a fucking demigod. But somehow it's not surprising. But I love armchair psychology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like to kind of find these things and go, yeah, yeah, that actually, you know, that lines up. I totally know what that means. (laughs) He, Niazov studied electrical engineering in college, and after graduating, he went to study in Russia, but he was expelled a few years later for academic failure. (laughs) Oh, oh, good. Um, he started his political career in 1962, becoming a member of the Communist Party. He quickly rose through the ranks, became first secretary of the Communist Party in 1985, as I mentioned, which is quite remarkable, I think, for an orphan. Um, but luck kind of played some part. He gained that post after Mikhail Gorbachev removed his predecessor after a cotton-related scandal. So there's, you know, Turkmenistan is one of the main producers of producers of cotton in the Soviet uh, Union. And then, as I also mentioned, under Niazov, the Turkmen Communist Party had a reputation as one of the most hardline and unreformed party organizations in the Soviet Union. Um, And then in 1990, he became the chairman of the Supreme Soviet of the Turkmen um, SSR, which was basically equivalent to to president. Pretty, pretty remarkable for, for an orphan. So, Anna, now it's time for the cult of personality talk. So, like, all the weird shit. Are you ready? I'm so ready for this. Okay. Every cult of personality is pretty distinct, Niazov's included, but I kind of noticed that his resembles the one around the Kim dynasty in North Korea a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. Like just in terms of its pervasiveness and kind of extreme nature. So I'm going to list for you some of the more bizarre and kind of messianistic pretensions, arbitrary rules that he came up with seemingly because he wanted to. Oh it's like God. it's like ruling on vibes. It's kind of like the kind that characterized spiritual cults, but like on a nationwide scale and backed by, in this case, near absolute political power. <laughs> That's wow. Okay, I'm so ready. So the first thing is the glorified titles that he gave himself. And I already mentioned the main one, Turkmenbashi. Others are eternal son of Turkmenistan, son as as in son of the sky. Okay. Uh great art great architect of the Turkmen's. Is he an architect? Turkmenbashi the Great. <laughs> oh my God, okay. I mean, do you think he's maybe like a little insecure in his identity or need for validation? I mean, I... I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, I just, I need to know if he's built anything. Like, I really need to know if he's an architect because that one. That oh my God. One... Oh, is this coming? Buckle up. Oh, I'm okay. All right. I'm shutting up and Are I'm you ready. ready. This is, this is okay. So I'll, I'll get to the architectural stuff later, but. He outlawed a lot of stuff. Okay. Ballet and opera, car radios. What? Video games. Okay. The use of recorded music at, at weddings. I assume live music's fine, but recorded isn't. Oh. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of get the sense here that he's just kind of like not a fun guy. 
and he doesn't want other people to have fun either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was trying to keep track of like what because when you said ballet and opera, I was like, okay, like I guess that's some like move, you know. Just to be clear, I'm a huge fan of both the ballet and the opera, despite understanding their sort of, you know, cultural imperialistic hegemony. But I was like, okay, that's maybe like, you know, some weird like anti-colonial bullshit. Um, And then you were like car radios. And I was like, wait, hang on a second. What? Honestly, I think he just like personally didn't like it and was just like, I'm going to ban it. Really? You don't think there was like an... Okay, if when I go through the rest of this stuff, it might make more sense. But oh my God, honestly, okay. I think it was just this arbitrary kind of look. I don't like this. Is there like is there a trend with the banning of music in general? Um, no, but some other <laughs> stuff that maybe. Uh, All right. Okay, so young young men were banned from having beards or long hair, and the, so that's Beard? more an attempt to curb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but listen, that's that's more an attempt to curb or control political Islam. Oh. So at least there's, you know, one can kind of find a politically expedient justification for that as fucked up as it is. I'm just saying. Right? It's, it's not so personal or arbitrary as, for example, his order for people to get gold teeth extracted. What? <laughs> yeah. Why? Just because, Anna. Just because? I, okay. I, I also have to add, I feel really bad for... The, uh, the women of Turkmenistan who have to deal with all of the beardless men because I'm just saying beards are a helper. Beards help. Be- beards are hot. Beards, yeah. Beards I'm are hot. I'm a fan. And also like... And there, there, there's some good beards in, yeah. in the region. Anyways, that was an important aside. <laughs> that, was, that was very important. He held a press conference to denounce the phenomenon of lip syncing. Okay, so that is a totalitarian rule I can get on board, board with. I'm down. Filip Kirkorov, where are you at? <laughs> Bye. Niazza canceled you. <laughs> he gave up smoking after heart surgery in 1997. Okay, this is where the, the banning thing comes in. Afterward, all of his ministers had to quit as well. And he banned smoking in public places. Oh my God. It's like when you when you accidentally do something people like. He's, he's like that guy that quits smoking and then hates people who smoke more than anyone else. Even though he smoked for like his whole life. Yeah. Amazing. By the way, I want to point out the fact that that smoking ban was instated in 1997. Ireland is considered the first country to ban smoking, and that was in 2004. But actually, it was Turkmenistan. Oh, huh. I wonder why. I wonder if that has anything to do with Eurocentrism. Just just, just throwing it out there. I'm just going to yeah, move on. <laughs> that rotating gold statue that I mentioned in the intro, okay, it cost $12 million to construct. Oh, my God. Cons- and it's not just a statue. Anna, it's not just a statue. It was a three-legged arch <laughs> topped by a 39-foot-tall gold-plated statue of Niazov, which rotated to always face the sun. Like it, like it's on a... It rotated. Like on a... It spun. Okay. Y'all, it was ugly. <laughs> Locals called it the tripod. To me, it looked like this like 1980s Disneyland space shuttle. Oh my god. It was located in central Ashgabat and it dominated the skyline. It was taller than even the nearby presidential palace and it was illuminated at night. Oh no. <laughs> like let's make the ugliest thing ever and then elevate it and illuminate it. Mama John, absolutely not. Niazov used the country's vast wealth from gas for outlandish projects, including a huge man-made lake in the Karakum Desert. It's the hottest region of the country. Okay. Where, by the way, very few people live. A good use of water. <laughs> a good use of water. He also ordered a vast cypress forest to be planted to change the desert climate. Just ordered it. Plant a forest. Did it work? No. Okay. 
So he, you know, he clearly subscribes to this like fake it till you make it philosophy, which kind of I, I kind of respect, you know. I mean, yeah, you know, you're like he planted a force, and I was like, I, maybe, like even I was like, well, I mean, did it work? <laughs> I know, right? Man-made lake and forest. Okay, by the way, desert covers eighty percent of Turkmenistan's territory, and summer temperatures reach fifty degrees Celsius. That's one hundred and twenty-two degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my god! He also built an ice palace outside the capital, a ski resort. In that climate and a 130-foot pyramid, because why not? Why not? Baller. Sure. He drove himself everywhere in a Mercedes, accompanied by his retinue, and he lived alone. His Russian wife lived in Moscow with their daughter, and they also had a son who traveled the world, but was rarely seen in Turkmenistan. Both his children were reportedly estranged. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. If I was related to him, I'd probably have to draw some healthy boundaries, maybe retreat forever. This kid's got a good therapist. Remember how I said the country has oil and gas, but few ways of exporting to the outside world? Yeah. Experts have said that Turkmenistan needs trained people to run its government and industries. The problem is the education system. Niazov cut mandatory schooling from 10 years to nine, apparently for reasons his own officials couldn't explain. There were virtually no textbooks in the country's elementary and high schools. This is according to teachers and foreigners that the Washington Post interviewed in 2002. Niazov banned all Soviet-era texts, but new ones were never produced to replace them. But that's really, that's crazy because, I mean, the Soviet Union had a obviously like problematic but robust education system. It had pedagogy. It yeah. wasn't perfect, but it was pedagogy as opposed to nothing. It was certainly a system that educated, you know, a large number of engineers, mathematicians. Like there was scientific and cultural movement in the Soviet Union. Um, a lot of, you know, movement forward. While I sympathize with the desire to sort of um, throw off a lot of Soviet um, sort of imperialist brainwashing, I guess is the best way to put it. Um you sort of have to balance that with the fact that like, do you, are you really willing to plunge your country into yeah. the dark ages, which sort of seems like the move here, which I'm pretty sure in other Soviet countries, um, they went the opposite way. Like they increased the education requirement from 10 to 12 years or to 11 years. Um, yeah, a lot did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, over the course of the next 20 years, many countries increased their education requirements. Um, so that's actually a stark contrast to, you know, other like things other FSU states have done. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. As if that wasn't bad enough, Niazov thought himself something of a writer and a poet. And his defining work is a book called Runama, which translates as Book of the Soul the study of which comprised a third of Turkmenistan's education system. Oh, my God. People entering the civil service were required to take an exam on it. Yeah, I know. What's in the Runama? It's a collection of hollow historical analysis, cliches, fables, and some autobiography. It literally advises readers to wear clean clothes and not eat greedily. I mean, is this like when a self-help guru becomes a leader of a country? <laughs> I mean, instead of an actual curriculum that could help educate young Turkmen and help them develop their country, I mean, this was forced down their throats. That's so depressing, honestly. It's just such a, I don't know, I'm I'm of the belief that education is just generally a human right. And um, that's A, really yeah. depressing. And B, it's such a, 
I don't know. It's you hear a lot about um, acts of violence against people, but I think that this is you know this is an act of violence against your own people to absolutely to stifle education to this degree and to deprive people of the ability to learn and to continue to grow. I mean that is an act of violence that has you know generational impact. Um, and all, all violence does, but there's something about depriving people of the ability to like go f- to even like go further for themselves that's really particularly mm-hmm. cruel and cavalier absolutely human rights groups said that the reduction of sen- secondary education in turkmenistan by one year was a deliberate attempt to dumb down the population to prevent dissent that's so fucking cruel i it's like it's so unfathomably cruel mm-hmm. yeah and so i want to get into a little bit about how this Um, cult of personality was, you know, kind of used as a tool for repression and regime longevity. Mm -hmm. And of course, internationally, much of Niazov's cult of personality was kind of taken as a joke, right? Like, look at this eccentric guy with his bad taste and his ridiculous projects. But cults of personality obscure a lot of dark shit. 100%. Now, it's been said that in relative terms, Niazov's rule wasn't as brutal as it perhaps could have been. There were much fewer political prisoners there than in other Central Asian states. The U.S. State Department could only find one for its human uh, rights report in 2002. Mm-hmm. But things got worse after an alleged assassination attempt against Niazov in 2002, which sparked a, a severe crackdown leading to dozens of arrests. Well, I also have to say that um, there's, you know, political prisoners and uh, punishing people for their political speech is sort of on the front end of oppression, right? Like once something is done, you um, tamp down on it, you brutally punish it. But it seems like what his strategy was, was to um, like overload on the back end where you, you know, cut education and you sort of limit the opportunities for people to get to a point of rebellion or um you know, political outspokenness in the first place. So there's sort of like, it just depends on your brand of dictator. It depends on whether or not you want supply side or demand side regulation of political oppression. It's 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 interesting. So, well, a former foreign minister, uh, Boris Shikhmuradov, was named as the man behind the alleged plot. He was sentenced to life in prison after a Stalinist-style show trial which was broadcast on television. The trial included a taped confession in which he said he was a drug addict and had hired mercenaries to do the attack. And what's interesting is that I've read some accounts from some political um, dissenters in the country who were rounded up and detained after that assassination attempt. Um, And some of them said that they didn't believe that someone would assassinate or try to, but then kind of, you know, in hindsight, they were like, well, things are so bad. Um, and that there were there were kind of mm, low level emerging um, sort of opposition activity, which I'll I'll get into a little bit later. So basically, the political prisoners were saying that like they didn't believe that somebody would want to assassinate him, but that on second thought, maybe like maybe this it, maybe this was actually just clamping down on a like a, the tiniest bit of a burgeoning yeah because movement. you know things were so kind of repressed that it was almost like an assassination attempt was so beyond the pale to many of them that it was hard to believe but it was also hard to believe because it was such a you know convenient pretext for more clamping down and repression kind of using that uh, alleged plot to you know completely suppress any kind of political um, expression in the country because it got really bad after that. 
Gotcha. That makes sense. So over the years, Niazov announced that citizens would receive natural gas and power free of charge. His last such promise was made to last until 2030. Um, and by the way, that that didn't, that's not happening. It was ended in 2019 because of a fall in energy prices, among uh, other factors. But I point this out because these kind of grandiose announcements are pretty common in cults of personalities. Because when you don't have a legitimate mandate on power, like through elections, you get these seemingly magnanimous gestures from, in this case, Turkmenbashi, because he's just, you know, so charitable. Right. So instead of building a political or state structure um, that can continuously support your citizenry, um, like a welfare state or anything to that effect, you're sort of reliant on big moves one at a time. It's like when your relationship sucks, but you buy your girlfriend flowers every time you piss her off. (laughs) Yeah, it's literally, you know, in the lack of, you know, in the absence of legitimacy, yeah. You do vanity shit that kind of shows that I'm taking care of things. Yeah. Go to therapy. <laughs> Build the foundation of your relationship to Rukmanbashi. <laughs> so it's why, despite the fact that public services in the country were severely underfunded, Niazov spent billions on the construction of the capital, the white marble structures, which now make it kind of look like Las Vegas. Like Vegas, but make it Eastern. Oh, okay. The new apartment buildings built as part of this project were empty because nobody could afford them. So they're not just vanity projects for the eccentric leaders to kind of show off. They're also meant to project wealth and success of the regime. And that helps promote regime longevity. Kind of paradoxically, by doing this, you create a problem because when people's villages and towns remain unattended to by the government, they see all these projects elsewhere and they're unhappy. But I think so far, the power differential between the people and the regime has been so vast that no meaningful opposition has had the chance to form. And that's not because dissent is totally extinguished. While people generally keep their ideas to themselves in Turkmenistan, leading up to that assassination attempt in 2002, Turkmen were distributing leaflets calling for resistance to the regime. There were spontaneous rallies against regional authorities. And there's an account written by a detainee during the crackdown that ensued um, and they described fellow detainees as being successful by the country's standards. Many were businessmen or had high-level positions in the government. They all had a kind of good quality of life, relatively, right? And they had no money problems. So they chose to risk everything because they wanted to improve the country and they wanted to bring change. And what's kind of makes that worse, their houses and properties were confiscated. Many lost their jobs. Their children were expelled from institutes, schools, and even kindergartens. Many of their relatives, wives, parents, siblings were subjected to torture by invest, uh, by investigators. So yeah, you know, eccentric cults of personality are absolutely sources of entertainment, but you're really missing the full picture when you don't interrogate, you know, the, I don't know, the sheer human suffering that it obscures. Yeah. I think of this issue as twofold because on the one hand, you have the, um, differentiated treatment of cults of personalities in the East as opposed to in the West, or especially when it comes to Central Asia. Um, And on the other hand, you've got that entertainment value, as you mentioned, being used to obscure and forget and erase the suffering of the people that it affects. Um, And so it's sort of a double gut punch, right? Because on the one hand, um, you caricature these people. You caricature these entire regions as sort of hysterical and funny. And like, of course, there are absurd, like they're absurd. I mean, that's why that's why we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why the podcast but on the exists. other hand, like through, 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but through that caricature, uh, when, when you don't get beyond that caricature, when you don't look at the suffering that's come because of that, you sort of, um, you erase that nation entirely. And like, I think, you know, one of the reasons uh, we're talking about this is because we see that there, we both like when you're living in these societies or when you're part of these societies or sort of intimately connected to them, um, you see both like you're deeply amused by your own people and we're deeply amused by like the absurdity that is around us. But at the same time, like that absurdity, uh, you see the effects of that absurdity as well. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You know, there's something to be said for, you know, as funny, as entertaining and bizarre as these leaders are. I mean, imagine them being your kind of representative on the international stage. I mean, you know, the, the indignity of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the United States sort of had a little bit of that experience with this absurdity of Trump. Um, and yet, you know, you still had, you know, state institutions that were more or less functioning. And I think actually what you said in, uh, earlier about how, um, you know, you're talking about cults of personality as if, you know, they don't exist in the West or whatever. I think the, the lines between what we consider kind of autocratic or non-democratic context and, the, you know, Western liberal democracies is completely breaking down. And I think... I struggled with this on a like almost personal emotional level because my PhD was on Russia as a non-democratic context and how social movements are able to mobilize or not in 2012. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the 2014 invasion of Crimea or annexation of Crimea was, um, it happened while I was writing my PhD and kind of seeing Western liberal democracies not kind of react to that and not kind of hold Russia to account was this, the first sign I had that something's not quite right. And in ensuing years, you kind of see more clearly, or it's, it's sort of, you know, you, you're less able to dismiss the non-democratic or kind of like unfair playing field that you have in the West, right? Like what kind of people can even run for president? I mean, these are just questions that yes. they're out there, but like you don't really ask them. Until you're kind of like, wait, but what's, what's, what's the difference, really? And obviously, there are differences. There are qualitative differences. There are substantive differences. But I think the lines between the two are becoming more and more blurred as we move forward in this fucking weird world. But um, it's something to kind of think about. I feel like I don't quite have, even now, a full sense of what exactly the distinction is between dictators and cult of personality in Central Asia and what we have in the West, because I do think the distinction is the empathy extended to the people. But at the same time, um, there's this sort of idea that like, you know, yes, there are these cults of personality in the West, but there are still functioning state apparatuses, um, which we see sort of like falling apart every day. But then there is like the material difference that like people live a worse life uh, in Turkmenistan so than they do here. There's a more symbolic difference as well, which is like, well, it's material and symbolic, but in those contexts, which are much more authoritarian and dictatorial, there's one center of power. Whereas in the US, for example, or other liberal democratic contexts, power is diffused. There's different sources of power, business, for example, there's like, you know, civil society, um, government, whatever. It's, it's diffused. It's not kind of, you know, concentrated in this like one fucking person. Yeah, that's true. That's a big difference because then it completely mediates how opposition can happen. How, you know, 
opposition is able to even mobilize and what sort of tools and leverage they have against, you know, their, their opponent. So it's, it's that a little bit. I think it that also kind of goes back to this idea of um, it connecting to Russian empire because sort of ultimately these uh, – where the power was vested was set up by the Soviet state, right? Because, you know, the center of the Soviet state was Moscow. The periphery was, you know, all of the outer republics and all of these other places. And so these single unitary people and individuals and, you know, occasionally businesses that were able to grasp power after Soviet collapse – have so much like there's it's so absolute because there was um like there was such a vacuum to begin with um so i feel like and also like turkmen society was tribal before russian imperialism came in so there were like different tribes and like if you take for example um those power relations i mean they're completely different if you go to chechnya for example um chechen society traditionally is one of the most egalitarian like ever like anthropologically ever in fact they're like greeting to one another is like may you be free like freedom is like the highest kind of value so to have someone like Kadyrov in power is antithetical to like every cell in their body it's antithetical (laughs) to their own history yeah their own culture the way that they are and when you think about what happens after you know you a colonizer comes to an area, creates a center and a periphery, um, creates like a place where the power and the knowledge is, and then decimates the existing knowledge and power in a certain location. And then once they leave, that difference yeah. and that um, the people who are able to seize power in those areas and like reimagine their cultures, their histories in whatever way suits their political ambitions, um, I think that might really be the big distinction. Absolutely. And that kind of political transformation isn't even possible without completely breaking down the existing social order around which community is kind of, you know, structured family relations, um, everything. Um, so that's completely broken down and people don't have the, the network, the support structure, the kind of almost, you know, on the psychological level, um, meaning that, that is given to their lives by their identity and their culture. It's completely taken away and broken down in order for this new system to kind of be imposed. It's very violent. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense because that means that the people who maintain power after that, it makes sense that they come from the Soviet apparatus because they're continuing to wield power in the way that the most recent imperialist or colonialist force was wielding power. So, you know, you see, I guess that makes sense why Turkmenbashi was like, you know, decimating education because it's just continuing to it's like one more iteration of preventing people from being able to you know build power on their own yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. wild wild man but the major difference is the reaction and the um empathy that we extend to the victims of that absurdity and those like tyrannical those tyrannical governments um because you know when you saw in the west when you have and I, I even hate saying the West because it's it's really just you know the your sort of European imperial imperial powers. Um, but when not just European, but when you, it's a, it's really imperial powers. But when you saw the reaction to sort of the victims of Trump's madness, um, that was pretty swift, and it was sort of an intense reaction against that. But I don't, I'm not sure that same empathy is extended for people you know living in Central Asia or in former Soviet states. Um, or indeed, you know, in the global, like in the, um, in the global South too, 
Um, and so I, I think the issue is when you don't really move beyond that mm -hmm. joke. Beyond the caricature. Absolutely. Um, and kind of consider the fact that there are humans that have to live under the shit. Um, and, you know, speaking of which, although we're talking about Turkmenistan under Niyazov, right, up till 2006, things haven't improved much. Just this past April 2022, as poverty and economic hardship have grown across the country, officials warned that anyone caught buying more bread than their allotted share could be jailed. So despite its vast energy resources, police are literally monitoring lines at state grocery stores and filming customers to stop them from returning to buy more bread. That's fucked up. That's so fucking dystopian. So kind of to conclude, you know, Niazov died December of 2006, um, and he was succeeded by Anna. Actually, can you guess who he was succeeded by? I mean, it's an unfair question because it's impossible, but go for it. Go wild. Wait, did I? I think I guessed it earlier. Was it his son? No. <laughs> oh. That would make sense. Okay. This doesn't make sense. Okay. Okay. He was succeeded by his personal dentist. What? Why not? Because why not? And that personal dentist went on to create a whole new cult of personality, which we'll talk about. Why am I imagining literally the dentist from Little Shop of Horrors, <laughs> like Steve Martin, <laughs> running Turkmenistan? <laughs> That's what I have in my head right now. Literally Steve Martin, like bending over <laughs> me, with, like, except instead of pulling teeth, he's, you know, causing economic and social and political econo uh, destruction and ruin. So that personal dentist went on to create a whole new cult of personality, which we'll talk about in another episode. And he was so that's, that's it Steve Martin. <laughs> it was Steve Martin. <laughs> that's a fact. We're not lying about that. Steve Martin is currently in charge of Turkmenistan. You can quote us. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's sort of hard to think about. Um, well, thank you for listening. We hope you learned something about Turkmenbashi which is, I have to admit, an excellent name. Um, and yeah, join us next week on Obscuristan, where we will talk more about the freaking crazy things that happen in Eurasia and why imperialism caused at least 90% of them. See you next time. <laughs> Bye. And without further ado, let's take a trip down to Obscuristan. Wee. <laughs> <laughs>